Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, our final stop on our tour of the history and future of the Union. We're looking at England with two historians of England, Robert Toombs and Robert Saunders. Which way will England jump? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, a literary magazine full of politics and a political magazine full of literature. Listeners can subscribe at a special rate of just £1 an issue by using the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me talk. So if we could start with a question that we've talked about a bit on this series about the history of the Union, but we've never really looked at directly from the perspective of English history, and that's our subject today. We want to see how this all looks from England. And the question is, is the island of Britain a natural seat of government? And particularly when seen from England, after all, we're, we, it depends what we mean by we here, but we're sometimes called an island people, but the English are not an island people. England is not an island. Robert Toombs, do you think there's a point we can identify in English history, this is obviously a slightly schematic question, when it starts to look like Britain is the natural unit of government for England? Oh, wow. Um, Well, there is the famous uh, event in which the Anglo-Saxon king, was it Athelstan, was rowed on the Dee by seven other British monarchs. You all know about this, I'm sure. It was thought at the time to be a a highly important symbolic issue. And so I'm told by experts, or at least I've read, this was because at that time, the Kingdom of England, the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of England, was thought to have a kind of position of primus inter pares in what's been called a, a sort of maritime confederation of the islands. So there's obviously something about the geography of the islands that makes it seem that they're some sort of political unit. It was the Norman Conquest that seems to have messed that up particularly, but of course, attaching England to the continent and leaving Scotland outside. So um, the answer is yes and no, I suppose. If you're thinking about more recent times, there were many attempts over the centuries to unite the English and Scottish crowns, and it was eventually the Scots who took over, of course, and continued to a very considerable extent or a disproportionate extent, I suppose one might say, to govern the resulting union. I think as a maritime power, it was clearly useful for England to be able to move its borders to the sea, to make sure that rival states like France or Spain or the United States couldn't get a military foothold in Scotland or Ireland. And it might be that that's something that we don't think about enough when we're trying to explain why the foundations of the Union might be weakening. If we think about the 1990s, the Downing Street Declaration in 1993 and the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 both stated that the UK government had no selfish strategic interest in Ireland. And I think if you'd said that to a Victorian, they'd have been astonished. But when the military threat stops being about French ships in the Irish Sea and instead becomes about things like intercontinental ballistic missiles or cyber attacks, or when you have an organisation like NATO that offers an alternative security framework for the British Isles, then the strategic arguments for the existence of the UK, they obviously don't disappear, but I think they do perhaps weaken. Part of the difficulty of thinking about this question is that from the point of view of those with power in England, that neither England nor the island of Britain has historically worked 
massively well as the site of authority. So if you go back to where like Robert started, that moment of Athelstan in terms of claiming to be king of the island, it doesn't last very long at all. And indeed, not only does it last not very long, his claim actually to rule England as the United Kingdom doesn't last. And indeed, that England's got some of lowland Scotland in it as well and proves itself really very vulnerable to external threat, both from the north and then finally in the Norman conquest. And I think if you then think that there's an attempt really probably in the Tudor era to construct a post-Norman version of the English kingdom, it also effectively comes to grief because Elizabeth can't produce a successor and we end into a monarchical union and that leads us into the the civil war period the republic and the first attempt at creating a unified british political authority but that doesn't work either so by the time we get i think to the the anglo-scottish parliamentary union in 1707 we're back into the issues that the two roberts have been talking about about the external security problems that England faces if it's just the English kingdom and that becomes the basis both for the Anglo-Scottish Parliamentary Union and then the Anglo-Irish Parliamentary Union. So it becomes geopolitical security is the primary focus in London. But when you move into the, at least into the world of the post-Empire world, and you could argue the post-Second World War world, then that becomes problematic because it's not quite strong enough for justification. And then if you like, the economic relations that have bound Britain together and the experience of world wars is coming to an end. And then if you're sitting in London, you have to have a, a reason for keeping a union that you do want to keep that has got to find some way of persuading the rest of the union that there is some more positive reason why it should be. And then we saw the limitations of the people with power in London trying to articulate that in the Scottish referendum in 2014. It's interesting that Robert Saunders was talking about the, the lack of a strategic um, justification for the union now and referring back to what was said in the 1990s when, of course, we were in a period of euphoria after the Cold War. It so happens I was talking to the, the naval attaché of a friendly power the other day who was, who was saying that Russian submarines, the Russians have invested apparently a huge amount of money in new submarines And he was saying this is the great strategic danger to us now. And one of these submarines, precisely, as we know, was noticed in the Irish Sea last week, the first time this has ever happened. So it may be that the naval base at Fast Lane has become a major reason for the Union and some sort of perhaps enhanced defence relationship with Ireland, neutral, of course, up to now, may be something that we'll have to think about in the future. So we can't, I think we can't assume that the kind of justification that was the fundamental cause of the Union, the danger of unfriendly countries using bits of the British Isles as a launch pad against other parts has entirely gone away. The phrase, the naval attache of a friendly power, takes me straight back to sort of 1910 and the John Buchan novel. So if we're in that world, then things haven't changed that much. Yes, exactly. Robert Toombs, just to pick up on something you said at the beginning, because I think it is important, we're trying to think about the deep history here, that's one of the things we've been trying to do in this series. And as you said, the the Union itself is not an English project, it's a Scottish project. Do you think that legacy is still there? Do you think unspoken among the English, whether that's the rulers of England or the English people, there is still a lingering sense that the Union project or even the British project, the creation of an identity, which is you know, Britain's, as Linda Colley called it, that that's a Scottish thing and not an English thing? I doubt if it's lingering in the sense that there's been a continuous sense or memory of this. 
we're not a very historically aware culture. I'd guess that 99% of people have no idea how the union came about and would certainly not think of it as being a Scottish creation. If we've got any sense of it, we've probably got it from Braveheart and things like that. And there's the, this assumption that the English somehow colonized and took over the rest of Great Britain. So I don't think there has been a lingering sense. And I think, in fact, the English, if I may say so, seem to me to be rather confused about the whole thing in their own feelings about this. And if anything, the resentment in England, which I think is latent, really is a, it seems to be a reaction to what is said by Scottish nationalists. Yeah, I think that should do a distinction here between the Union and Britishness, because I think that the Union, particularly from the point of view of the English elite really became strategically necessary for the reasons that's already been discussed. They didn't like, I think, the internal political implications of that, and they were prepared to concede Scotland a great deal of autonomy, particularly about religious questions. But actually, I think, let certain aspects of Scottish affairs be dealt with back in Scotland. We want to keep the high politics, if you like, around geopolitics and managing the what became in the 20th century anyway, a a national economy in London. But I think that the lack of relative interest in developing the idea of Britishness from the centre in London has had consequences because once the idea of Britishness started to work much less well for many Scots and there we drew some kind of tacit consent from the idea of Britishness, then it's pretty weak. And that, I think, if we're looking at it in terms of the identity aspects of the union, is part of the explanation of where we now are. I think we should also bear in mind that the union has changed over time. And in some respects, England has become much more dominant in the union than used to be the case. If we think simply in population terms, when the Act of Union with Ireland was passed in 1801, the population of England and Wales was about eight and a half million Ireland 5 million, and Scotland just below 2 million. So the the nations were disproportionate, but not spectacularly so. Whereas today, the population of England and Wales is well over 50 million. The population of Northern Ireland is less than 2 million, and of Scotland is about 5.5. So England has become much more oversized within the Union than used to be the case. And it's also, I think, true to say that the governing class of the Union has changed. Until probably the middle of the 20th century, the governing class of the UK was both British and English. So if you take a figure like Lord Palmerston, he was an Irish peer who spent his whole life living in England, but like most of the Whig aristocracy, was educated at Edinburgh at the feet of Scottish economists like Adam Smith and Dugald Stewart. William Gladstone was born in Liverpool, but his most famous election campaign was in Scotland in Midlothian in 1880. He became very much a Scottish figure. You could wear the Gladstone tartan. He had a country estate in Wales. He spoke at the National Eastadfot. Whereas today, the leadership of both major parties at Westminster is almost exclusively English and competes almost exclusively for English votes, while there is a separate leadership class now in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And I think that has significantly changed the politics of the union. So in respect to that, does New Labour stand as the end of an era rather than the start of something? After all, New Labour was absolutely a a version of a UK-based political party where Scottish politicians played a crucially important role. Do you think that now looks like it was the end of something? I think it probably does. Unless we can envisage a revival of the Labour or Conservative parties in Scotland, it's very difficult to envisage a cabinet 
in the coming years that has figures like Gordon Brown and Robin Cook in such prominent positions. And I think that really is a problem for a union government if it is a competition between English politicians for the support of English voters. I think the paradox, though, is that New Labour is both an end and a beginning. It's a continuation of what's gone before because, as David said, there's a Scottish element at the core of New Labour. And indeed, if you look at the leader preceding Blair, was also Scottish. But at the same time, it's New Labour that presides over the very reason why the parties at Westminster, principal parties at Westminster, are now dominated by English politicians. And that's asymmetrical devolution. And it's manifesting in in different ways. And you get in the Labour Party, because New Labour carries on with ambitious Scottish politicians going to Westminster, they leave behind an open space for the Scottish nationalists back in Edinburgh. And once it becomes clear, which is essentially when the Conservatives start to revive, which I think you can actually put down to 2005 when they win the majority of the popular vote in England, once the Conservatives start to revive, they are going to become essentially the party representing a significant part of England in the Union. And the non-Labour English voters become very unhappy about the prospect of the SNP in any form whatsoever being part of government at Westminster, even if it would just be a question, as in 2015, of supporting a minority Labour government. And that makes it incredibly difficult for the Labour Party to win. And in that sense, the electoral politics of asymmetrical devolution ensure intense secessionist pressure from Scotland because they make it very difficult for anything other than the party who the majority of Scots don't want to vote for to be in power at Westminster. Well, on the point about asymmetric devolution, I think that clearly has created all sorts of really difficult pressures. But devolution was always likely to be asymmetric because the union itself is asymmetric, because one of its member states has 84% of its population. And as we saw in 2019, a government can win a landslide majority at Westminster, despite winning only 20 seats outside of England. David Cameron in 2015 won a majority with only 12 non-English MPs whereas no party since 1945 has ever formed a government without winning pretty close to 50% of English MPs. So no government at Westminster is ever going to be insensitive to English opinion because it cannot govern without it, whereas it clearly is possible to govern while being deeply insensitive to Scottish and Welsh opinion. Robert Toombs, just to come back to your point about the English being a sort of historically blind people, we don't really know our past... In your book, The English and Their History, you did make the case that the story of England is itself shaped by the constant retelling of the early history of England, the pre-Union history of England, whether it's Norman Conquest, Middle Ages, the Civil War period, that the identity of the English as a separate people is shaped by that history. Has that gone? I mean, when you look at the politics of the last 10 years around Brexit and so on, Do you see echoes of that? When people talk about England, when they talk about English political identity, do you hear echoes of that early telling and retelling of the story of England? Or is it gone? Well, I think, I mean, the Brexit debate on both sides was to a large extent about history or understandings of history, however unsubtle we might think some of these are. I guess we only know little bits of our history. We know, you know, lots of people talked about the Reformation because a lot of people have done that at school. And a lot of people talked about the Second World War because everybody knows more or less about that. And a few people talked about the British Empire because I suppose people at least know there was such a thing. 
But these are not things that are about the Union. And I guess we don't really have much of a memory of the history of the islands and the history of the Union within that broader history at all. The sociologist Krishan Kumar wrote about this and about the reason why the English were not very conscious of themselves as English, that they preferred to think of themselves as British, okay, the generalization. And as he said, this is precisely because you're a, a large chunk of a multinational state or indeed a multinational empire. So it's more sensible to talk about Britishness than to talk about Englishness. And it's only very recently, as we all know, that Englishness has tended to become more um, a political term on all sides of the of the argument, certainly in, in Scotland, I think it is. And Robert Saunders, do you think that stands in contrast, say, to the 19th century or the early 20th century? Was there a deeper historical sense then, do you think, of the history of England within the Union, in the way politicians presented their arguments to the electorate? Well, I think there is perhaps an irony that the less historically informed our political class becomes, the more susceptible it becomes to historical myth-making. And in a sense, perhaps figures like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg are quite emblematic here, in that, as far as I can see, neither of them really knows much history. But they've both published what we might loosely describe as history books, in the sense that they tell a very simplistic story about the past that makes a political statement about the present. But those histories are very much British histories rather than English. And I don't think that the English really have a story about before the Union. And that's partly because the English have never really seen the acts of union as dividing lines in English history. I think if you asked people for the key dates in English history, they might say 1066 and 1215 and the Spanish Armada and 1688, but they probably wouldn't say 1707 or 1801. And I think that does potentially store up a problem, because if Scotland were to become independent then there is a very optimistic story that can click into about reclaiming its history, reclaiming its independence and becoming a modern nation state. England doesn't really have that. And so the danger is that for England, the story becomes about resentment and rejection. And it's not an easy thing to watch your neighbours celebrating liberation from your embrace. <laughs> I think this is complicated in terms of Brexit, in part for the reason Robert Toome says that the history that quite often is taught at schools is pretty selective and it means that one of the periods that I think is hugely consequential to understanding not only England actually but the way in which the union went on to be constructed is the, the 17th century and the, the Stuarts and the, the Civil War and that tends to be missing. There seems to be much more interest in sort of a rather celebrated version of the Tudors rather than the darker story of the 17th century. But I think that what is striking is there is a, an ongoing story about Englishness and this, and perhaps I disagree somewhat with the others, but it's not very political. So if you look in the, the 19th century and the Victorian times, we're in the Union, we're at the height of the empire. There's a great deal of interest in cultural Englishness. There's a whole resurrection of the Gothic architectural style to go with it. And there is a, a very considerable reawakening of interest in the Anglo-Saxon period they've got the cult of Alfred the Great comes back. It's not thought of as in political terms. It's much more about England as a place and its past. I think what we can see, and, and I do think that though it's not a sufficient explanation, it's a significant part of the explanation. What we don't see really until 
we move into the period of devolution for Scotland and Wales is more explicitly political articulations of what English nationhood means. It moves into the political. And the problem is it's much more difficult for an idea of Englishness to be attached to, I think, a political idea than it is to history and culture. And it then becomes, because I think of the politics of the Union, what happens after 1998 and English conservative resentments about it. And I think that this is where it is, we have to remember, is, is that the politics of Englishness is always tied up with the party politics because the Conservatives are the dominant party in England. So a, a union in which it looks like Scotland has certain advantages to it is one that is more inclined in its balance of power to the lower party, one in which England has more advantages and it is more inclined to the balance of power of the Conservatives. And I think that what we've ended up with, though, is a situation in which the dynamics of the union, both very strongly inclined to the Conservatives being in power in Westminster and very strongly inclined to the SNP being in power in Edinburgh. And it's not actually sustainable to have a a union on that basis because both of them end up undermining it. I think there's an interesting contrast here with the end of empire because one of the reasons why decolonisation wasn't more traumatic for Britain was that there was a readily available story that could make sense of that, which was the idea that Britain had always been nurturing its colonies towards independence, had been preparing them for independent statehood. Now that story might be total bunk but it meant that it was possible to understand decolonization, not as a failure, but as the ultimate triumph of the imperial period. Now, there isn't, as far as I can see, a story like that by which England can make sense of the loss of Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland. And so I think that increases the danger that the response to the breakup of the Union, if that's what happens in England, is one dominated by resentment and anger rather than some more optimistic piece of storytelling. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Could I go back to something that Helen said earlier? So talking about how hard it is to govern this island or these islands from London. But as Helen said, it's not that easy to govern England from London either. It never has been, and it isn't today. I mean, it really isn't today. You know, we talk about the Scottish question, the Irish question. Do you think when you look at the history of England, there's an equivalent northern question? Should we be less shocked than some people seem to be that politicians are parading themselves as the king of the north and so on? Is is that a perennial feature of English political history? Well, I suppose it, it has been for a very long time. Mr Gladstone would have been the king of the north. It's just that it's now flipped. You know, areas that were originally peripheral and then became major industrial areas, the home of nonconformism, I mean, religious nonconformity and organized labor, the trade union movement, and hence of the labor part, well, the liberal party and then the labor party, which were always very separate from the rural areas of the north and also, of course, from the, from the south of England, the home counties and so on, have now flipped over. And that's an extraordinary change. 
and it's that surely that has altered our whole political dynamism and not not the fact of there being a difference but the fact that that difference has now come to mean something quite other than what it has meant for well for for 150 years and in a sense there are two things going on here there's there's north south and there's urban rural and at the moment in the politics of england those two things are not the same story at all just in the last few weeks, there's been a sort of upsurge of stories about terrified Tory MPs in the South, thinking that their seats are vulnerable to a kind of coalition of the educated, labour-leaning, affluent classes. And that this shift is cutting across the other classic North-South divide. I think David makes a really important point that it's crucial that we don't flatten out the politics of England because every region has its own politics and its own political identity. But I think there is a significant difference which is that at the moment, UK politics is very focused on the north of England. And there are clear political reasons for that. If we add together the northeast, the northwest, Yorkshire and the Humber, then I think we get about 158 seats, which is more than the whole of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And of those, 89 are Labour and 68 are Conservative. So this is a very live electoral arena for UK politics. And because of that, both UK parties at the moment are pitching very heavily to the north in a way that they're not pitching towards Scotland, because that isn't an electoral battleground for them in the same way. Yeah, I think that there's a caveat that's got to be put to the dividing this into a north-south divide, because that completely misses the Midlands out geographically. It ignores the fact there was actually an east-west politics to England and I think it also ignores the ways in which there is in every part really of England that isn't London, significant anti-London sentiment at different times. But I think that the North is interesting, both for the reason that Robert said, because it's clearly the part of England at the moment where the electoral contest is taking place, more so than in the Midlands, which looks like it's perhaps more decisively moved in the conservative direction. And the Midlands has been often the place where elections have been fought between the two major parties. But I think there is an ongoing, if you look at the long, very long historical story, where the Norse place in England, or at least parts of the Norse place in England, is a recurring part of the story. If we go back right to the beginning, you know, English unification under the Anglo-Saxons, that Northumbria is the last kingdom. It's the part where Athelstan's rule in England very quickly comes to part. Indeed, by the end of his life, it's it's already in some difficulty, a considerable difficulty. If you go on to the Tudor period, you have a, a number of revolts. Um, the pilgrims, Pilgrimage of Grace begins in the north, also a northern uprising against Elizabeth. So each time you have a, a strong period of essentially some southern power in England trying to unify, have a more unified England. It looks like that there's a northern rebellion against that. And then once we get into the 20th century, as the thing that's bound economically, the whole union together, the industrial period is getting into its first real difficulties in the 1930s, that's when we start to see a clear economic separation between the industrial parts of the north and the south, east, and the Midlands ends up on the side in terms of its economic fate in the 1930s with the, the south more than the north. So I, I think that it's too simplistic to have a, a simple north-south schematic, but the north is an ongoing story, I think, about the politics of England. Can you just say a bit more about the east-west divide? Because in a way that's slightly more counterintuitive. Where does that run today? Well, I think that it's striking that if you look at where UKIP did best in the period between the 2010-2015 
general elections. It was on the east side of England. The complication to that is once you bring Wales into it, UKIP actually was performing around the same average level as in England in parts of Wales anyway. But again, if you look at the north and divide it between the northwest and the, the northeast, the politics in those two regions have been historically quite different. The northeast was a much more straightforward Labour bulwark for a long time, whereas the politics of the northwest it still was a more labour orientated region, but the Conservatives still had a significantly stronger foothold in the northwest than until the last few years they ever did in the northeast. Robert Toobes, you said that Gladstone could claim in a way to be king of the north. But that's as a national politician. Andy Burnham has, in the past few weeks, sort of danced around the question of whether he wants to remain mayor of Greater Manchester or has leadership ambitions within the Labour Party. And one of his answers is he doesn't want to go back to Westminster. That's a miserable place to do politics. And he hated it and it threw him out anyway. It rejected him twice and so on, although no one's completely convinced by that. But the idea of a politician, an English politician, staking a claim to national prominence, but not with a national power base but with, relatively speaking, a local power base. This is a phenomenon of recent years in in British politics, in English politics. Is it also a historical phenomenon? Well, it's very unusual, isn't it, for that to be true of England, because in most countries it's certainly not true. In France or Germany or the United States, the countries that I suppose we, we tend to think most of, it's very normal for national politicians either to begin locally or to maintain a local power base throughout their political careers. We'd all think of the case of Joseph Chamberlain, I should think, as being the English example of that. But you have to go back to the eighteen what the 1870s to, uh, for that to be true. So uh, the more you regionalise politics and economic and social policy, then the more you will expect people to be occupying that kind of position. It's because, as we all know, of the extreme centralisation of British government, or of English government rather, that you've had this focus on the House of Commons as the only political arena. Maybe that will change. It would logically change if you change the way the country is governed, as it's changed, of course, in the devolved parts of the UK. I think there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic about British politics and English politics at the moment, but actually one of the more positive developments is perhaps the return of a politics in which you build a power base locally and then that becomes a platform for Westminster in a way that reconnects Westminster politics and local politics. As Robert was saying, if you go back to the 19th century, then you've got the Chamberlain family that builds its power in Birmingham. You've got figures like Richard Cobden, whose power base is Manchester, or John Bright coming out of Rochdale. The aristocratic class that remained so important in the 19th century was, as its name suggested, a locally based aristocracy. You had Lord Derby, whose estates were based in the area around Liverpool. And I think that was, a, in many respects, a very welcome dynamic. And that, of course, plugged into a media culture in which most people read local newspapers, not national newspapers. So the current prime minister, of course, Boris Johnson, in a way, laid his credentials for the premiership by being mayor of London. And if figures like Andy Burnham in future come back to Westminster politics from their mayoralties, then I think that would be a a really encouraging development. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons for this is because historically, actually, although the power was in legislative terms centralised at Westminster, the actual story was quite a lot more complicated than that there was a kind of what sometimes gets described as a like operational federalism where there was a lot of informal devolution of essentially around 
administrative issues, but also low politics, not just within England, but within Wales and Scotland as well. And it's when you get into the 1960s and the idea that the state needs to modernise the British economy, perhaps for some people's minds, modernise the the British constitution. And the fact that this comes at the same time as you're getting the beginnings of the rise of the present versions of Welsh nationalism and Scottish nationalism, the ways in which they intersect, I think, is part of the story in which we're living through. And that as we've moved away from that kind of politics and modernisation, that the politicians have actually tried to find ways of doing a version of devolution on a sometimes formal basis, as in Scotland and Wales, sometimes these more ad hoc bases, and that we might read this actually as attempting to get us back to where we were before the centralising instincts of the 1960s onwards. And Robert Saunders, your point about Boris Johnson, as it were, a local politician to a certain extent, who then becomes a national politician, but London is so complicated in this story. After all, as Mayor of London, his coalition was outer London against inner London. He won by winning the edges, not the centre. And recently, Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham have appeared a bit in public together, and there's a talk about a possible sort of alliance between Manchester and London. Can you stake a claim to national politics from a London power base at the moment, do you think, given all the things we've said about where London then stands in the story of, of England? Is there a plausible way forward for Labour, which is to build a national story around, say, what Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan can say together? Well, I think at the moment, London bashing is very fashionable in British politics, but it remains electorally very significant, and it remains overrepresented in the British media. And I think that's significant because as British politics becomes more presidentialized, as it becomes more focused on the person of the prime minister, then part of the importance of these roles is that it builds figures as celebrities. So the case for Andy Burnham is not simply what he may or may not have done policy-wise in Manchester, It's the fact that he was in front of the cameras on the steps, standing up to Westminster. So these kind of positions create a foundation for celebrity politics, and that's perhaps a a less positive element of their contribution. So to finish, can we think about what might actually happen? We've talked to people about the story of the Union and the possible future of the Union from the perspective of Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland. But how does it look from England? And all the things we've said suggest that it's not really possible to talk about England or the English or English voters. There are too many divisions, geographical, party-based and other. But there is still a fundamental question, which is how far will England go in allowing concessions to the rest of the union before something breaks? And I'd love to get a sense from each of you of where you think that limit might be, if you have any sense of where you think that limit might be as we move into the phase of negotiation and contestation between Westminster and Edinburgh, but also real contestation potentially between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. Do the English have a breaking point here? Do the English have a point at which either English nationalism or a sort of let's be done with it takes hold? Or have we got a lot, lot more muddling through to come? Robert Toombs, what do you think? 
Well, I think there's certainly a kind of peevishness in England about Scotland in particular as being ungrateful, etc., etc. But it doesn't seem to me that that's anywhere near the point at which any conceivable English government would say to the Scots, um, we're not going to subsidise you anymore, you can become independent and we don't care. Something that I think Helen said earlier was that the union was no longer sustainable. And yet there seems to be no way out of it, especially after Brexit. It makes me think a bit of the Eurozone. The Eurozone too is unsustainable, but there's no way of, of ending it. So the thing that would worry me is that the union will persist as a rather disgruntled, forced association of states that feel that they don't really want to be in it, but have got no way out of it. And is that partly because, as with the euro, the currency binds us together? Um, I think we're much more bound together than the Eurozone, not only by the currency. It would depend how you define the polity. Is it a union-wide polity? If there were to be another referendum on Scotland, should Scots living in other parts of the UK have the vote? You could think about this in a lot of different ways. But I think there are lots of ties which we tend to overlook because, as I think was said earlier, we haven't really got much of a narrative of this. We've taken it for granted for a long time. We haven't really told a story about the union, Britain, and so on. And so it's been left by default to those who don't like it to define what it's all about. I think muddling through probably is the most likely constitutional future. There's always been an undercurrent of English resentment towards the other nations of the Union, which it's been possible for politicians to tap. If we go back to the third home rule crisis before the First World War, Balfour and Bonner Law were talking about this poor little kingdom of England being oppressed by the Irish. But the reality is that the Union remains a very good deal for England. It remains and in population and economic terms, will always remain overwhelmingly dominant within the Union. I think it is interesting that the Conservative Party, which is always very good at sniffing the electoral wins, hasn't really embraced Englishness in recent years. What it's embraced is an Anglo-centric Britishness. So it's the Union Jack that cabinet ministers are flying in their living rooms. It's not the George Cross. It's global Britain. That's the mantra, not global England. We are about to get a new entity called Great British Railways, which will mainly operate in England, but it's still going to have that British banner. And I think it's been quite uncomfortable for some Tories to see their government acting as the government of England during the pandemic, not Britain. So I think the Conservative Party at the moment sees the future as being a more assertive Englishness within the British Union rather than an Englishness that pitches itself against the Union. Yeah, and I don't think this week, unless I've missed it, anyone has called for the BBC to become the EBC. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> but Robert Sanders, you've written recently a bit that one of the things that brings the Union to breaking point is the electoral system. The first-past-the-post system does create, locks in, for now anyway, these English majorities. Do you think that's the thing that's going to have to give? The Labour Party, as they have been doing on and off from long time has started sniffing around electoral reform again. Is that what's going to give? I think it's something that should give. I'm very doubtful whether it will. I think first past the post is very damaging to the union, partly because it exaggerates the political difference between parts of the United Kingdom. So in 2015, the SNP in Scotland won 95% of Scotland's Westminster seats on 50% of the vote. Unionist parties that had won a referendum a year earlier were effectively wiped out at Westminster. If in 2019 the same votes have been cast in Scotland 
on a proportional system, you would currently have, I think, 26 MPs from the SNP, 15 MPs from the Conservative Party, 12 Labour MPs, and five Liberal Democrats. You would then have political parties at Westminster that, in order to govern, required support from outside England, and that had serious representation across the rest of the United Kingdom. So I don't think first-past-the-post will go, because I think whenever this government has had to make a choice between the interests of the union and its immediate political advantage, it's gone for the latter. But I do think the the first-past-the-post is becoming a real problem for the integrity of the union. I should say, I do think the union is sustainable. I just think that it's sustainable for the short and possibly to the medium term on a muddle through basis and a muddle through with very considerable risks and dysfunctionality attached to it. And I think that it's sustainable, though, in good part because the Scottish nationalists don't have a coherent independent project. I think it's very clear, as you all said, that the Conservative Party is a unionist party. It absolutely is committed to the union. The question is, is how is it going to deal simultaneously with the demands of the SNP for a referendum that are not going to go away and manage the risk of something on its flank coming up in which a party, let's say someone in the Nigel Farage space, is basically trying to mobilise English resentment against what might be perceived as more concessions to Scotland. And I think one issue that is coming, and you can see that the Labour position would appear anyway under Gordon Brown's influence, is again to push the regionalisation of England agenda. And I don't think that that is a place that the majority in England will easily consent to if we look at past attempts at trying to regionalise England. So I think the difficulty is that there's got to be some way of like doing long-term repair, including convincing young Scots that they, the union has got something positive for them, whilst the electoral politics of it keep doing things that undermine it. And that, I think, is a difficulty that it's quite hard to see a way out of at the moment. Like I was just asking you do, you, do you agree that there is a comparison between the union and the eurozone? Unsustainable, but have to be sustained. They're not the same thing because the Eurozone doesn't involve a political union, let alone one that is as old as this. I think that the point where there's some overlap is the difficulty for the Eurozone is around what do you do with common debt when you then go back into national currencies? That's a major deterrent. And the issue of how to deal with the currency question, how to deal with a central bank is quite central to the difficulties of there being a coherent Scottish independence project. Final question for Robert Toombs. Robert, do you think that Brexit has made sustaining the union harder or easier? Um, It's probably made it harder politically. You know, it's obviously caused a great deal of resentment among Scottish and Irish nationalists and not only them. But I think it makes the breakup of the union much more difficult in practical terms because it was membership of the EU, I think, that was at the root of the separation of states like the United Kingdom or indeed of Spain in the case of Catalonia in the sense that the EU offered an easy route, an apparently painless and easy route to independence as a small member state. After Brexit, that option doesn't really exist. Robert Toombs' new book is called The Sovereign Isle, Britain in and out of Europe, and it's available now. He's also 
the author of The English and Their History. Robert Saunders is the author of Yes to Europe. He tweets at Red Historian, and if you follow him there, you can see his recent really interesting discussion of the voting system and what First Past the Post is doing to the union. If you'd like to support Talking Politics, do please follow the link that comes with this podcast to Talking Politics Plus. You'll also get the opportunity to hear the podcast with our adverts in the middle, and we really appreciate your support. Next week, I'm talking to the historian Linda Colley, who I mentioned briefly in today's episode. It's part of the Cambridge Literary Festival. I'm talking to her about her new book, which is on the history of constitutions, but I'll also be talking to her about the history of Britain. And coming up, we're speaking to Ed Miliband about the policy ideas that might just save the world. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. another what you had for breakfast oh yeah i had a um, rice sourdough bread with some exotic african rainforest honey saunders what did you have for breakfast well i feel i should have had the full english but i'm afraid i had a bowl of cornflakes and some toast and non-rainforest honey hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.